On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Matthew Lapine about his new book, The Logic of the Body. So we cover topics like, what is theological psychology? What was the theological psychology of thinkers such as Thomas Aquinas, John Calvin, and others? How should we command our emotions? How should we understand therapy and embodiment? How might this benefit pastors in shepherding their churches? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're a podcast that's devoted to serious thinking, but we want to think with certain intellectual virtues, so we're constantly trying to promote things such as charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and especially cheerful confessionalism to put a positive spin on what we think is a valuable posture toward the Christian tradition. And today, I'm really looking forward to introducing you all to Dr. Matthew Lapine. Uh, He has recently written a book called The Logic of the Body, Retrieving Theological Psychology. And if you look at the back, there's a couple of endorsements. And I think J.P. Moreland, I think a lot of our listeners really like him. And he says, this is not only first rate, but desperately needed. Uh, I think a lot of our listeners are familiar with Matthew Levering, who says, a most welcome book from a young doctor of the soul. And really, I just, I think it's a fascinating topic. I think those who have read particularly more older sources have probably encountered some of the language of faculty psychology and different things that are going on there. So I think this is, number one, just really interesting theological retrieval. And number two, something that is extremely relevant for the life of the church. So I'm excited to talk to him about the topic and uh, to get going on that. So, Dr. Lapine, before we jump into the subject at large, why don't you give us a little bit of background about yourself for those of our listeners who may not be familiar with you, and then uh, maybe tell us a little bit about what got you interested in this particular topic. Yeah, yeah, great. So, my name is Matt Lapine. I'm I'm, I'm actually a northern Minnesota kid, um, but uh, I'm living in Iowa now. I've, I'm married. I've got three kids. Um, but uh, of more relevance, I just uh, in, I guess, 2018, finished a PhD under Kevin Van Hooser. And the book that I'm writing then is a, is a um, uh, it's just a slightly reworked version of the dissertation. Um, but the dissertation was a bit of a strange one. Um, it was sort of a coming together of interests in the history of uh, philosophy, theology, and um, psychology. And really, the interest for me started uh, when I when I was married. Uh, my wife um, had significant uh, struggles with OCD. Um, it's probably the first four years of our marriage, and um, I had been trained uh, in biblical counseling from a from a graduate of Westminster. And what I found at the time was um, some of the things that I was that I had learned were actually quite unhelpful um, for for helping uh, my wife and. Um, uh, some of the things that did help her, I didn't really have great theological categories for. And so um, you could say that was sort of a, I mean, it was sort of a spur uh, under the saddle that sort of stuck with me for 15 years. And so um, 
when I finally got to uh, TED's, I actually wanted to write on emotion more generally, um, but uh, I realized that if I was going to write on emotion, I needed to know what emotion was. Um, and I had a friend, uh, Paul Maxwell, really push me hard um, in the areas of trauma and embodiment. And um, so, yeah, we we had um, some vigorous conversations about these things. And uh, um, the end result was was this very strange book that covers a lot of territory. Dr. Lapine, as as Jordan mentioned, the the subtitle of your book is Retrieving Theological Psychology. So I guess a good place to begin would be just try to unpack that um, that phrase for us, theological psychology, because that's going to be new to a lot of us. Um, most of us have never seen those two words put together in that way. So help us understand what you mean by that. Yeah, I I was I'm I'm a bit irritated with um, you know the word psychology being reduced to the modern discipline. So you know, late 19th century, you have your first psychological laboratory with Wilhelm Wundt. And, um, you know, most people, when they think of psychology, they think of everything that's happened since then. Um, but, you know, psychology, obviously, you know, at your root, you're, it's the, the study of the soul and its powers. And um, so really, psychology is much, much older than that. I mean, it goes back at least as far as um, Plato and Aristotle. Um, and so uh, I'm really trying to try to push on that, say, no, uh, psychology has actually always been, or at least mostly always been a part of theological discourse. And, um, uh, I think what I, what I've observed is that since psychology became a disparate, it's a separate discipline, um, theologians have just not as carefully dealt with it, um, since late 19th century. Um, uh, it, maybe you could say it's sort of frozen in place. Um, and so, what I'm trying to do is uh, two things. One, I'm reaching back to the older tradition to see if there's some resources for addressing some some contemporary questions on this. But two, um, also trying to 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 kickstart um, uh, some of the modern reflection on it among theologians. I think um, most of the discussion has been, look, what's the relationship between psychology and and theology? Assuming a modern definition of the term, and I, I would just rather. Uh, not have to assume the modern definition of the term. So that's helpful. And I, I really want to just kind of dig into some of the stuff you've got on, on going on in the book. You've got chapters that really do, I guess, canvas a lot of this historical work in here. And you've got everything from emotional voluntarism to the psychology of Thomas and developments in medieval and re- Renaissance psychology, Calvin, modern reform psychology. I think probably most of our listeners can be most familiar with obviously the two big names you've got in here in Aquinas and Calvin. So maybe as a little bit of a starting baseline, we just talk a little bit about what it is that, what their thoughts are on psychology. And then we can kind of move more into how does this actually apply to a actual theological psychology? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I set up the problem, um, uh, I mean, b- basically what I'm presenting is a model. And so th- the problem from, from my perspective is, um, one, an overly dualistic account of body and soul, which tends to dichotomize the two, um, and doesn't pay attention to the way that our body sort of qualifies all of our, um, all of our functions, our psychological functions. And then two, uh, a failure to distinguish, uh, between let's say reflective higher thoughts and lower unconscious or automatic thoughts and um, choices. And on the other hand, our emotions. So I, I call it 
uh, we're, we're not accounting for bodily plasticity or the way the body qualifies uh, our um, psychology. And number two, that we're not accounting for the tiers within psychology. So the historical section is a little bit, uh, it's sort of oriented towards um, uh, presenting actually how Thomas Aquinas's psychology does exhibit these characteristics. And then sort of what happens in between Aquinas and Calvin um, in terms of theological psychology that leads Calvin not to have these features that I'm really arguing for, um, but <clears throat> without him explicitly rejecting them. So um, basically what Thomas Aquinas <clears throat> thought about psychology was, you know, body and soul are a, a hylomorphic uh, dualistic account. So there's a, it's a holistic account where uh, the soul is not just responsible for our internal uh, thinking or feeling or, or choosing, but the soul is responsible for all of our powers. And there's like three levels to that. One would be your automatic nutritive powers, you know, digestion and, and your heart beating and those sorts of things. Uh, there's a middle level, which is sort of a midpoint. It's, it's sort of a, a half voluntary level. Um, so this would be your perception, the way that you see things, and then also your passions, your your um, uh, reactions to the things that you see, and those happen by a sort of quick judgment. <clears throat> they don't um, they don't consult reason before uh, those those judgments and reactions happen, but they are informed by reason, and then that's how they're sort of halfway between voluntary, um, because our reason and our choices um, inform them, uh, but not in the particular moment of of um, of our, uh, of our passions. Um, and then on top le level is obviously your rational level where you have uh, your intellect and will. Um, but so what ends up happening sort of in between Aquinas and Calvin is Calvin's psychology is very, very simple. Um, you, you have a much more, uh, dualistic account of body and soul. Um, and it, you know, there's, I, I think the intermediary chapter there is, is really fascinating, but it's also one of the most technical in the, in the book. Um, because it's uh, yeah, it just sort of explains how the powers uh, of the of the soul uh, came to be seen as identical with the soul, and so it sort of simplified the psychological furniture a lot. Um, but then, so his his is much more dualistic. But then he's also basically just leaning on intellect and and uh, will as rational faculties. And so you might say that I mean he talks sometimes about your um, your senses, but those. I'm putting powers in air quotes here. We can't see it in this non-visual podcast, but um, those sort of bodily powers are sort of downgraded to irrationality. And so the the role of virtue it, for Aquinas was actually to uh, habituate those middle powers and to to bring about um, sort of uh, easy and and automatic um, reactions to the things that, uh, that we're encountering. So that, um, you know, the, when you've downgraded those middle powers to irrationality, there's a, uh, um, you know, you, there, there's not that sense of development or habituation that was possible with Aquinas. So do you think this is mainly a byproduct of Aquinas leaning more heavily on Aristotelian categories than, than Calvin? Was this something that maybe from the time between Aquinas and Calvin um, was, was there just, a, um, a lack of retrieval, I guess, from later theologians of, of Aristotle and back to more, um, platonic categories, or is this something just unique to Calvin among his, like in his day? Cause it seems Calvin kind of flat footedly just accepts 
the platonic definition, doesn't it? At least from my mm-hmm. reading of Calvin. I don't I don't know. You probably have read way more of Calvin than I have. I've read his institutes, but that's about it. Anyway. Yeah, there's there's a there's a bit of a platonic resurgence just before Calvin. And so I, I think you're right. I think that Calvin certainly leans uh, towards the platonic view. I mean, there's certain uh, phrases from Plato, for instance, that he cites a number of times, right? Um, that's not to say he's unaware of the Aristotelian uh, view of things. Um, in his, uh, there's just one sort of short chapter in the Institutes where he treats psychology and he he specifically references Aristotle's uh, view in, in there. Um, there's a great book by, I think it's Arena Bacchus uh, that, that gets into that. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, the Aristotelian tradition, um, I mean, there was, there was healthy debate all the way between and the Aristotelian tradition was, was really influential after Calvin too. So, um, your post-reformed, uh, scholastics, um, or post-reformation reformed scholastics are, um, heavily invested in Aristotelian philosophy. And so, um, it's not a, it's not like a, a, a disappearance. In fact, um, you know, even Rene Descartes, I mean, if you, if you read him, with Aristotle in mind, you see how he's just uh, moving within the scholastic tradition. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a complicated story. Uh, but certainly I think Calvin leans more uh, towards the, the platonic side of things. But I do think that even within the Aristotelian tradition, this idea of a more rigid dualism with, uh, with the, the powers of the soul, is, it just becomes a feature of the scholastic tradition itself. So even post-reformed, I, I didn't get into this in the dissertation. I didn't have the time or space to research it. But my guess is that even as some of the categories that I'm citing are, come up more frequently after Calvin, it's different because their their uh, their notions of um, of what what sort of development or rationality is possible with that middle layer of powers uh, is is just different than what Aquinas assumed with his more hylomorphic view. That's interesting. I. I I probably need to go reread it. I know Paul Helm has that book on what human nature from Calvin to Edwards. And Hmm. he seems, if I remember correctly, to try to articulate that there is a almost majority position of hylomorphism in the post-Reformation period. So Hmm. I'd be curious how that they map that back onto this. I I need to go reread it to really compare and contrast. But, Hmm. you know, in, in the beginning of your book, you kind of sketch out where the exact problem that you've kind of put your finger on and just not, I guess, where is it? Let's, I found it. Um, a governing assumption of this work is that any approach to psychology that does not account for how the body qualifies human emotion is inadequate. So right. given Aquinas, given Calvin and all the developments that go on, what does it mean for you to have embodied emotion, how does that really shape our view of psychology? So maybe mm. give me just your thesis to some degree in a nutshell. Yeah. Yeah. So let me just say for Aquinas, uh, first of all, a, a passion <clears throat> is a movement of the soul with bodily alteration. So, um, those two things are very tightly married to each other. Um, the, the background of of my questions here is basically an ongoing um, uh, disagreement between philosophers and psychologies about uh, psychologists about the nature of emotion. So there is this feature of emotion that it seems to be analyzable both from a sort of a propositional standpoint 
and um, as a you know neuroscientific um, uh, you know physiological reaction, right? And so it has a logic, but but there's also this deep underlying physiological component. And so instead of sort of um, you know, being forced to choose between the two, I'm trying to actually just grab both horns of that dilemma. Um, but I mean, the, to make this a bit more concrete, I mean, um, you know, what what I appreciate about Aquinas's view is that he's got, um, you know, both your physiological component, but he also uh, basically says your, your your passions are responsive to perception, which is a quick judgment. And I think what, what a lot of people get confused about is... Um, uh, emotions are not responding to thoughts in in the same way that I mean I when if I you know see someone threatening I don't first think uh, I'm in danger right um, that I, I like to say something like my body is making that judgment so it's an unconscious judgment uh, now that unconscious judgment is is uh, quite intelligent actually um, and I think that's one of the things that gets lost um, on the psychological side of things is that um, you know. I, I, one example that I, I've given is um, I was uh, walking out of a grocery store one time. I looked to the right and I panicked. Um, and the reason that I panicked was because I, I had a parking spot that I usually chose. If you'd asked me 10 seconds before, where did I park? I would have said I didn't park in that spot. I parked in another spot. But as I looked to the right, I saw a green van with the driver door open and someone rummage, rummaging around inside. So my body was making a quick judgment that was actually contrary to what I would have said I knew in that particular moment, which is where I parked. But the judgment was that someone was robbing me. Um, and there's so many intelligent uh, uh, sort of unconscious judgments that are bound up in that. But you know, that's an essential part of the emotion. But the other part of the emotion is that uh, I, you know, I had this, uh, immediate sympathetic nervous system reaction this this sort of heart racing sort of uh, gasp uh quick to you know um uh, uh drawn of air um so th so what i'm saying is that those components are are both uh part of an emotion the reason that that it matters though is because the the body also enables uh, a, a sort of habituation um so for someone who's deep in anxiety um you know our, our neural pathways are constantly forming and they're constantly reinforcing. And so um, it's like driving on, you know, grass on a muddy day. You're going to make ruts if you go one time, but if you go time and time again, you're deepening and deepening your habit. And so what some people are up against with, with regard to childhood experiences or with regard to um, longstanding psychological habits is just a much uh, more difficult time um, with emotional experience because those emotional experiences are so much more intense or long lasting or, um, you know, triggered, uh, you know, with a hair trigger. So, um, yeah, I, th that's what I'm trying to say is I'm trying to say, look, uh, we actually have to account for the ways that the body uh, qualifies our experience and makes it either easier or more difficult, depending on what else is going on in our experience. Yeah, this has, you know, huge implications for how we pastor as pastors, how we um, counsel others, um, you know, how we understand sanctification, because you, know, you can't just someone is is coming to you and it's whether it's a sin or it's it's something that they're struggling through you know we can't just tell them to to get over it so i guess one of the takeaways here mm -hmm. is is that we need to be much more patient um and understanding there's a lot more that goes into this than than maybe meets the eye <clears throat> um do you have any particular um uh, pastoral advice um 
for for us? Like maybe any listeners who, I guess there are specific issues. Um, you've, you've mentioned uh, OCD already and anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be particular to those issues, or maybe just maybe just general advice on on how to walk people through this with a with a, maybe a better understanding than we came into this podcast with. Mm-hmm. Well, you've mentioned the first thing, uh, which is patience. I mean, it, <clears throat> part of what I want to do is I want to give a, a new metaphor for understanding human emotion. Um, you know, in a biblical theological sense, uh, humans are compared with with uh, plants or trees, right? Like we um, we bear fruit like they do. I mean, even even um, you know the fruit that the spirit uh, 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 yields in us. It's called the fruit of spirit, right? Um, that that agricultural metaphor, um, I, I think, is apt because we're groundlings. We that that our embodiment is is uh, that we come from the ground. We're called um, we're ha adama, right? We're uh, so so because we come from the ground and we're organic beings, just like plants are. Um, I love this idea that we're we're sort of God's undergardener, gar- uh, gardening with His words uh, in our in our embodied agency, and so. Um, you know, you have some control over your garden, but you don't have total control. Um, you choose how to space or how, where, what sort of light to put it in or, or how to water, but you don't, you know, control whether there's a tornado or something like that. Um, so you, you also, uh, the patience is required. Like you have to wait for, for the, for the fruit to mature. Um, so uh, yeah, I think that's, I think that's really important. I think, uh, the other thing is, um, you know, I'm trying to collapse the dichotomy between sort of spiritually and uh, spiritual and physical in in a sense, because I, you know, if you pay attention closely to Romans six through eight, for instance, uh, body, flesh, members are all throughout those three chapters, and the spirit is bringing uh, is giving life to our mortal bodies. Right, that that's um, that's what what the spirit does. You might say the spirit is a, re- a renewal of breath on the ground, as Psalm one hundred four promises. Um, and so, uh, you know, we should be supernaturalists about this. Um, you know, the spiritual life is not just about establishment of better habits, but it's about deep dependence and fellowship with God by the spirit. Um, but that doesn't mean that we have an over-realized eschatology also. So the other thing present in Romans chapter eight is that there's an already not yet. This, yes, the spirit is bringing life to our mortal bodies, but he's also um, present um, uh, with us and uh, making inutterable groanings before the father um, um, uh, because of our suffering. Um, so Romans eight eighteen talks about suffering and it talks about how creation is groaning and we ourselves also groan because we're groundlings. We're, we're from creation. So we're still in that already not yet uh, stage where we, we are, we participate in the curse on the ground, but the spirit is bringing new life to us. And so, um, you know, patience, uh, deep dependence on the spirit. Um, and then thirdly, I would say, um, you know, Romans six through eight, uh, you talk about, I think, two beats of Christian sanctification. One is reckoning ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. And the other is presenting our bodies as instruments of righteousness, which leads to our sanctification. And I think in Romans chapter six, you see this clear sort of, uh, um, basically the topic of Romans six is how is the reign of grace realized in our mortal bodies? That's what, that's what I would say anyway. And I think you see this um, this clear pattern. If you present your bodies as instruments of unrighteousness, 
uh, it leads to greater and greater lawlessness. There's like a habit forming component of our of our uh, action and our our experience. Um, so, you know, it does actually matter not just what you think, but also what you do and the experiences that you have. And so, um, for that reason, there's actually um, you know, it, it, of vital importance is our, our relationships within the body of Christ. So our physical body is within uh, the the body of Christ, um, and and people are are part of our sanctification. So I'm not sure how many I've given here already, but uh, but th- those are some, those are I think some important pastoral implications. Oh, I remember there's one more that I wanted to say. Um, yeah, the the last thing I would say is, um, you know we are a great mystery uh, to ourselves. Um, the The ways that sin twists everything that we do or think or experience is, is pretty deep. And so um, I would just say, if you're a pastor, or even if you're just struggling yourself, um, having some compassionate curiosity to find out what's actually going on um, is, re- is really, really important because, um, you know, pride and shame are equally, uh, uh, equally big threats to us. Um, and a lot of people, um, you know, fail to understand uh, how they've been malformed uh, within within this world that we live in. And so asking some deep questions about what's going on, where is sin present here, where is maybe abuse or neglect or or um, things that I've experienced, where are those present? Um, it, it's, it takes a lot to untangle all those things. Yeah, that, that's helpful. Uh- one uh, question that came to me when I mentioned, hey, we're going to interview Matt on this topic from one of my friends who's a counselor. He wanted me to ask you particularly about, does your philosophy of counseling toward a trichotomist, which he said is the most common in integrationist models of Christian counseling, mm-hmm. or a dichotomist, which is common in biblical counseling circles view of man. I am not at all familiar with those <laughs> those debate. I know what trichotomy and dichotomy is, but yeah. different models of counseling, I, I have no idea. But I am curious about how those two, I guess, doctrines, which I guess for our listeners who may not know what a dichotomist is just body, soul, right? Trichotomy mm-hmm. would have body, soul, and spirit. So there's like this third mm-hmm. spiritual element of some sort. I don't know mm-hmm. how many people are trichotomists anymore. It seems like that was pretty popular mm-hmm. for a small period of time, but I'm curious nonetheless, what, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I, I would say that I'm, you know, first a theologian. And so I, I, I don't have a thorough understanding of the whole field on these things. Uh, but your question did actually push me to read an article by Winston Smith called dichotomy or trichotomy, how the doctrine of man shapes the treatment of depression. So that was, um, an interesting window into this debate. Um, but, you know, really I'm sort of saying a pox on both their houses because I, you know, what I'm advocating is uh, holistic dualism, or you might say dualistic holism. So I, you know, I, John, John Cooper's book was part of my dis- dissertation. And um, he said that he, uh, in one of his discussions over his book, that he might actually prefer dualistic holism, uh, that, that sort of way of flipping it. And I certainly do um, because I, I think that the problem with the, let's call it the dichotomous view or the dualistic view is that you tend to then see um, the human person as sort of inward and outward. Um, And the inward part of you is that part of you that's your soul. So that's your thoughts, uh, your choices, your emotions. And the outward then is the way that 
that that works in expression. So the, the way that works in our actions. So, you know, Ed Welch has this sort of diagram that has like a heart in the center. So our heart is the center of our agency. And then there's a circle around it. And that's how it sort of works out in our body. The problem with that is um, it sort of prioritizes uh, the soul's activity for emotion in a way which um, you could say it it assumes that anxiety is guilty until proven innocent or something like that because your heart is is sinful and that's the ultimate source of the emotion that you you're feeling and uh what i want to say is is actually no uh we are holistic creatures and so we have body soul shouldn't be distinguished internally um uh we we actually it's more helpful to pay attention to uh we could call it the I think like in Romans six through eight, Paul's distinguishing between body and, and mind. Um, so it's, it's like a tiered way of looking at, at self where, um, where there is the possibility of internal uh, contradiction, but sin's relationship and suffering's relationship is deeply intertwined in those things. So I think that trichotomy, um, you know, when it comes to Christian counselors, um, you know, they would divide it where you've got, uh, body, so physiological stuff happening, sp- uh, spiritual, which is pertains to your relationship with God, and then psychological, which is basically everything else. And Winston Smith's critique is that that just tends to basically um, mean that your spiritual is just crowded out by psychological elements. Um, so it, I, I, I'm not a I'm not a huge fan of of most of the ways of arranging psychological furniture that I've that I've encountered. Yeah. Um, I I think actually that. Uh, what's what's the, what's called two process theory in neuroscience is really helpful for understanding how our psyche works, but um, but uh, we're we're entirely spiritual. I mean, uh, God is invested in matter. Uh, it uh, the physical world matters for um, for our Christian worldview. So, given your emphasis on the body and and how we don't want to divorce these things, what is keeping you from going in a more physicalist direction with your anthropology in general, mm-hmm. and just saying consciousness and psychology and all that, uh, almost like you know, just arises from the physical properties that that we have, and it's it's not something that's a actual distinct substance mm-hmm. of some sort. So then in that way, it seems like it would be easier to say, yeah, your body definitely matters because well, at, at bottom, that's all you really are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd probably point first to, um, uh, JP Moreland's work on this or Brennan Rickabaugh's work on this. Um, but I, I tend to think that, you know, like Nancy Murphy's, um, uh, emergent dualism, uh, is, is just, materialistically reductionistic. I, I don't think there's a way of avoiding materialistic reductionism. Most of your analogies, which try and help make sense of it, like, you know, it's just pixels on a TV, but then, you know, all of a sudden, voila, there's an image. Well, that metaphor is dependent on mind <laughs> because I'm observing the image. Uh, I've constructed the image. And um, so I I actually don't think that that sort of uh, supervenience relationship produces anything but efficient causality. causality. And um, without teleological causality, we're not genuine moral agents. And so, yeah, I've got, I mean, I've got a whole chapter on this, but, um, but to, to me, um, you know, the, uh, if you, you need genuine mental causation and the, 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 the view that makes best sense of that is, is a, non-materialist, uh, non-physicalist uh, view. 
Well, I was going to say supervenience, but then I thought better of it. And now you said it. So I feel okay using that word, <laughs> which it, yeah. it, Brandon's grandma, if you don't know that word, it's okay. <laughs> I think most people don't know what that word means. Uh, and it, I guess it just means, you know, it's reduce whatever it is, it's reducing fundamentally to something uh, mm-hmm. more fundamental than itself. Yeah. So, so Nancy Murphy's other uh, illustration is of, uh, is of an, an airplane. So it's got, physical characteristics, which when arranged in a certain way, give rise to new properties, right? So um, when the, when the wing is arranged in just, uh, just a certain way, uh, it, it can, it has lift uh, as an, as an emerging property. I don't see how mind can be an emerging property in that way and produce anything like real, um, um, uh, real moral uh, um, action. Because uh, it, 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 it the, I, I don't see how that can produce or can, can, uh, how anything that I decide to do could be other than just efficient causality working downwards up. Well, this isn't something we had, we had talked about discussing. So if, if, if you don't really have an answer right now, that's fine. We can move on to something else. But, um, sure. I, I believe you're a pastor. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I, seeing as you've thought a lot about, these issues and, and, and counseling and caring for, for others. I wonder if you, if you have any advice on what we can glean, particularly from the book of Psalms, maybe um, I've been reading a couple books by Todd Billings lately, and um, he utilizes the book of Psalms a lot um, when it comes to dealing with suffering and sanctification and, and, and um, those issues. I just was curious if, what you thought about the value of the book of Psalms when it comes to this discussion in particular. Yeah. Yeah. Psalms are, um, much beloved. And, you know, when you, when you talk to someone who's really suffered a lot, um, it seems like the reason that they love the book of Psalms is because it gives language. It gives words for things that they're, uh, let's say, uh, afraid to speak. <laughs> uh, you know, there, there, there seems to be uh, a question about the theology that's always present in the Psalms or, or even maybe in a stronger sense, Lamentations, right? Um, the, the author of Lamentations says, uh, you know, implies that, that God is the one who's done this to me, that God is my enemy, um, well, it, I mean, it's, we, I think we have to make space for, um, a, a way of, uh, of verbalizing pain. Uh, we have to make allowance for a way of verbalizing pain that is actually part of the process of, of coming to terms with, with our experience. Um, I wrote something, I, I hopefully I'll, I'll get it published eventually here, but, um, about the book of Lamentations and about how um, it's 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 talked about how Lamentations has been used as a liturgical vehicle uh, among the Jewish people for thousands of years. I mean, they they read it aloud every year, and um, it it Lamentations has a really interesting structure too because it's um, it's so sensory oriented. I mean, it just you almost feel like you're there sometimes. It, it, you just picture the the dust and the bodies heaped outside the city and and all those things. Um, but it's also uh, very conscientiously constructed by uh, by the acrostic. And um, I think I I really do think that the the genre of of some of these uh, psalms and of lament and, and lamentations um, is a way of sort of bringing structure to things that don't have structure or can't or can't have structure or, or we're having trouble integrating them. Um, that's w- one way of looking at trauma is narrative breakdown. 
that trauma is an event where you, you can't integrate that into your story. And um, I think that the, the processing of language in prayer, and uh, there is a sort of hopefulness to this, right? I mean, um, the Lamentations ends with a prayer, you know, of, of restoration, and then the sentence, unless you have utterly forsaken us. <laughs> and, uh, um, but even the mere expression of that prayer, I think, is hopeful. It's it's an address to God um, in verbal form, trying to make sense. And so, these aren't uh, these aren't you know our um, our best packaged theology, but they are, I think, liturgical vehicles for for processing um, the the just pain and and sense of alienation or, or lostness that comes living uh, under the curse. Yeah, because even most of the Psalms, you know, even the Psalms of Lament, you know, there's there's this crying out and despair, and then most of them end with you know a word of praise, at the, uh, with the exception mm-hmm. of I, I think Psalm eighty eight. But um, mm-hmm. I, I think it's just a that is a really good way to put it. It's a helpful vehicle to to kind of give language to all this complexity of of what it means to to live in this fallen world. Um, to my body is deteriorating. You know, all of these things going on around me and inside of me. I do think that the the Psalms are um, tremendously helpful for us in that way. So I, I appreciate that. That was helpful. Yeah. The, I'm just thinking about now the Psalms in, in relation to the local church. If this is something that it's really giving, it's like a vehicle to give language to this. I mean, like you said, you're a pastor. Are there things you should be doing with your church members, with your congregation to really integrate the Psalms into the life of the church to help people uh, be Mm -hmm. able to express and understand these emotions in a healthier way? Yeah, no, I I absolutely think so. I mean, one question to ask is, uh, why is it important to weep with those who weep, right? Um, I mean, uh, it's so the Psalms, I mean, I think are immensely uh, helpful on an individual uh, level, but as a as a body um, to sing psalms of lament together, I think could be intensely therapeutic too. Because um, you know, th- there's a I don't know. I the, Carl Truman published an article a long time ago. Now it's probably been a decade ago. Uh, what do miserable Christians sing? Um, it was one of those articles that just a short little thing, but just caught caught on. It hit a note that lots of people wanted to hear. And I think, I mean. I, at least I have. I don't, I don't know. I'm sure there's a lot of listeners who have experienced this too, where you're going through something just so difficult in life, and uh, you come and you're you've got you know the latest uh, happy clappy uh, song that um, that everyone's singing, and you feel this profound sense of alienation. Like I've I've stood there, sort of looking around, thinking to myself, "Am I the only person who is just totally devastated today?" You know. And I think that um, you know it's a it's a tremendously healing ministry that you can offer to your people to recognize that there are people in very low and dark places that need that sort of fellowship of the saints and crying out to God in those moments. So one thing that caught my eye early on in the conversation that you mentioned that's somewhat related but not totally related to the topic at hand. You were explaining what a passion is, at least for Thomas, where. Mm-hmm. It has a necessary element of being uh, embodied or relate, related to a body in some way. Mm-hmm. And it made me think of the contemporary debates over passibility versus impassibility in God. And mm-hmm. if that's what a passion is, it seems like it's ruled out from the start that God could be passable in any way. 
Mm-hmm. Um, am I thinking about that right? So it's the passion question is distinct from the emotion question. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess what I'm doing in the dissertation is assuming that, um, that emotions are, are basically what Thomas Aquinas calls passions. Mm-hmm. That there is some, there is some, uh, um, yeah, I, I, I would say there's, there's probably further work to be done it, given my model about what affections might be. I, I sort of get into that at the end of my introduction where I, I give a proposal about what affections might be. But, um, you know, um, I think traditionally people have, have, have said, uh, God does not have passions because yeah. those require a body, but God does have affections, right? Um, the, I think that, I mean, I've received some push pushback on this, about my failure to attend to, uh, affections. And I, I've sort of bracketed that out for the purposes of this dissertation because it gets confusing uh, all the way along the way, historically speaking. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you'd have to do a massive amount of historical work to really trace how this works. And there's even disagreements among people who, um, have spent a lot of time studying these things. So somewhat I'm, I'm sort of bra- bracketing the question. <laughs> um, yeah. but, but yeah, that's the traditional distinction is that God is impassable because he doesn't have passions. Yeah. That makes sense. Now, for those who want to learn more about just psychology in general, what are your primary recommended resources on that? So, I mean, maybe you can bucket them. Here's some theological, religious type psychology resources, and maybe there are other secular ones that are just pure psychology that are helpful. Do you mm-hmm. have ideas offhand of what you would say these are the go-to ones? Yeah, I, I guess it sort of depends on, I mean, psychology is an enormous field, right? So it kind of depends on um, on what sort of reader I have um, as well. I mean, I, the, the book, the title of the book is the logic of the body. And the reason it's called that is because of Nicholas Lombardo's book, the logic of desire. Um, so that's a great primer to Thomistic psychology. Um, that, it, it, that's the cat, that was the catalyst for, for the dissertation. Um, you know, a bit more n- narrowly in terms of contemporary psychology. I mean, I, I, uh, if someone's, if someone's suffering, I would recommend, um, uh, JP Moreland's book, finding quiet, um, Moreland uh, kind of talks about his his history of panic attacks in there, and um, uh, it's it, that book is has a remarkable amount of overlap actually with with what I'm doing in the dissertation. Um, I I read that after uh, I think or at least after the the book manuscript was was submitted. Um, so it's uh, the overlap is is not uh, not reliance, but it's a it's a great book. But I, mean, I think a lot of pastors could could use some sort of um, just expansion of categories. Uh, I am I am absolutely not trying to um, uh, replace the doctrine of sin with with suffering, um, but I am trying to nuance the way that sin and suffering uh, interlock with each other, and so. Um, a lot of times I'll, I'll recommend books like, uh, Bessel van der Kolk's, the body keeps the score or, um, I'm blanking on the author right now, but, uh, um, uh, the boy who is raised as a dog, Bruce Perry, uh, Bruce Perry's the boy who's raised as a dog. Th- that book is fascinating because it, it gets into, um, uh, just extreme ways that childhood abuse or neglect can, can malform someone. And, um, 
I think just understanding the the extremes on that is really, really important for asking good questions, good pastoral questions of of the people that that you're faced with. Um, yeah, I'm tr- I'm trying to think. I mean, I, I <laughs> I'm I'm sort of when I recommend these things, I'm trying to recommend just sort of. Um, you know, get over the threshold type of recommendations. So one other thing I recommend is uh, John Green's crash course on the sympathetic nervous system. (laughs) It's uh, John Green has a YouTube, um, uh, a YouTube uh, channel. What is it called again? Uh, It's crash course. Yeah. Uh, Crash course on sympathetic nervous system is really helpful for understanding how the body's involved. The neuroscience scientist that I uh, leaned on a lot was Joseph Ledoux. He's got a book called anxious. That'll, that'll get you a lot deeper into uh, what is the physiology of anxiety? Um, so usually I'm trying to I'm, I'm trying to sort of patch some holes, um, and I'm hoping that people will read these as Christians and as theologians, but understand kind of the aspect maybe that they haven't been paying attention to. Hmm. That's good. One one last thing I, I I'm curious your opinion on. I think just my own personal context growing up, uh, the type of therapeutic psychology that was all really permeated my church and my own personal context was just self-helpism, um, pop Enneagram type things. I think of who are some key authors, Cloud and Townsend's like boundaries, mm-hmm. those types of books and works were really the warp and woof of my own ecclesiological context growing mm-hmm. up. I don't know how much you interact or really read a lot of those things, but I would be curious, do you see deficiencies in those approaches? Do you see, Hey, these are some positive things because at Mm. least from my context, it seemed overly psychologized to Mm -hmm. some point, to some degree, and it just didn't really have lasting effects on people. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think I, 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 I think it's hard to get theology and psychology uh, um, uh, done well, um, both at the same time. So um, one of the guys that I really appreciate is Eric Johnson. Um, and he's at Houston Baptist and he's written a book called God and Soul Care, which is a, th- a, a theology for counselors. He's also written one called Foundations of Soul Care. Um, you know, he would be a rare type of person who really understands theology well and psychology. Um, that's, that's pretty rare to, to do that sort of interdisciplinary work. Um, I tend to, I tend to be a critic of both what you would call integrationism and biblical counseling, um, because biblical counselors don't tend to, um, they don't tend to pay enough attention to the nuances of physiology and, um, how the, how the unconscious works, for instance. Um, that's another thing you could say too, is, um, advances in understanding the unconscious have, were really hindered by uh, Freud dominating that topic for a long time. Um, but so much of our mental processing happens automatically. And um, so understanding that's important. But so biblical counselors tend to be hurt by what they ignore. And integrationists tend to be um, tend to be hurt because they, they don't really have a, a sort of um, um, they're not leading with what God is doing in the world. <laughs> um, and, and so the, the theology tends to be weak. Um, so I, there's not a, there's not a really well-developed middle space, but I, I hope, I hope that comes to be the case. I, uh, it may be that actually, um, you know, as the, as the biblical counseling side of that 
gets a little bit more um, sophisticated, um, that uh, they'll be, uh, you know, that, that, that they'll be the people who can really do, do both well. So, so if, if you had a recommendation, say someone wants to be, say, a counselor rather than to be like full-time pastor, they want to go full-time counseling. Mm-hmm. Are there places they can go to get a strong education to help them be formed in the right ways? Yeah. I mean, but my first recommendation would be to get, uh, uh, you know, a master's level degree in both <laughs> um, so that so that you are are conscious. I mean, the thing of thing about education is, is you're initiated into a sociological group and a tradition and ways of practicing. And so you really can't, you really can't sort of understand the inside of a discipline until you've gone through that sort of initiation. So, I mean, I think that's the ideal situation. Um, I, I, I'm intrigued. I, I haven't uh, spent enough time uh, down there or, or paying attention to what they're doing, but I'm very intrigued by Eric Johnson's program at Houston Baptist. Um, I, I think that that's got a lot of promise, but, um, but I mean, it, to be formed like Eric is means that he did an MDiv and a PhD in psychology. And I, I, I think right now that's the pathway is, is to, to really know what you're talking about in both spheres. Cool. Well, I, I've had a ton of fun picking your brain on, on this topic. I think this has been a delight. Um, for those listeners who want to follow you, Matt, and follow your work, do you have, I think, I mean, I think you got a Twitter, but do you have a website or anything else that they can uh, check out and say, okay, I want to keep up with anything he's releasing or thinking about? Yeah. Yeah. So MatthewALapine.com, although it's uh, relatively infrequently updated, um, I've, I've moved the blog to the, la- the to the back page because uh, I just don't post on it enough. So you can find out more about the book there and get, you know, link to a review and some other endorsements, but um, but yeah, there's uh, uh, probably the Twitter account is my is my sort of dump my my most recent thoughts <laughs> uh, place. But. Awesome. Well, this has been great. And again, for those listening, just a reminder: the book is the Logic of the Body, and it's from Lexham Press, so it's it's an affordable book. He didn't publish this with Oxford University Press, where you have to pay with your right arm. You can actually <laughs> go pay out of your wallet, and it'd be fine. Um, and we will link to this in the notes, but I mean, you can just Google his name and the, and the title of the body or title of the body, title of the book, and it'll come up. Uh, we recommend you guys checking that out, getting, get a copy of it. And once again, thanks Matt for joining us. This has been a lot of fun. And, uh, for everybody who's been listening, you've been listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And thanks for tuning in. <laughs>